Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. Last time we saw Paul embark on his third missionary journey, and we were introduced to the dynamic Apollos. Today we're going to see the crucial difference between a life with the Holy Spirit and a life without, exemplified in these Ephesian disciples that Paul runs into. Verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. I'll stop it there. Ephesus is where Apollos had been, and Corinth is where Paul had been. They kind of switched places. Give you a better idea, if you were here when we had the map up of the Mediterranean, you could see where Corinth was with respect to Ephesus. And incidentally, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, that corrective letter to the Corinthian church, from Ephesus. Verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism, meaning John the Baptist. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were twelve in all. Many knew about John the Baptist's baptism of repentance, but they knew nothing else. The Ephesian disciples here may have been disciples of Apollos, because if we remember when we studied Apollos, he also didn't have the complete message. The baptism of repentance made the way for receiving Jesus and ultimately the Holy Spirit. Because really, you can't receive Jesus or the Holy Spirit without repentance. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you, I'll just give you an example of a new believer who came up last Sunday. She came down, and every time you see a new believer come forward, there's one or two ways that they could respond, and then some things in the middle. They could respond, yeah, 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 I'm up to the front here, now give me Jesus. Because I want to add him to my other amulets on my necklace, because I want to hedge my bets so I can get to heaven. Come on, give me the Jesus guy. Okay? Obviously, that's not repentant. But what we see time and time again is when people come up out of their seats, or whether it's a, a, you know, a preacher, an open-air preaching, and people come forward, they are broken. And that's what God is looking for. They're broken. They come forward, and they're ready. They're ready to turn their life around and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So they're repentant. Lord, what is it that, how can I please you? How can I have that relationship with you? I renounce all my past sins. That's repentance. Both prongs must be met for salvation, repentance and belief. So Paul explains the whole gospel message, and these Ephesian disciples probably rejoiced when they finally found the whole message that they'd been waiting for. Now let me just cover, uh, let me follow some different types of baptism to kind of straighten this out a little bit. John the Baptist, his baptism, remember, he was baptizing in the Jordan, and he told people to pretty much repent, repent of their sins, and he dunked them in the water, okay? That signified that they were ready to repent of their sins and receive the Messiah. And that looked forward to Christ's coming. Then, John's baptism acquiesced to Christ's baptism. What's Christ's baptism? Well, it was a conduit to the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. In Luke 3.16, when John the Baptist was asked, are you the Messiah? He responds, I indeed baptize you with water, but one indeed baptize you mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, referring to Jesus. Now this was more of a spiritual, not actually a physical baptism. 
Now, Jesus' baptism encompasses the following, the whole gamut here, right? It encompasses being sealed with the Holy Spirit upon conversion, being filled with the Holy Spirit to do whatever the Lord has tasked you to do, and to also receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are covered in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And lastly, in our age, what do we have? We have the Christian baptism. And people ask, well, what's the Christian baptism all about? Well, that's where a believer identifies with the risen Christ, his death and resurrection, going into the water, also is signifying dying with your old life and leaving it behind, and coming up resurrected in newness of life, and living that new life in Christ. Now, incidentally, every year we have our baptisms. And if you're taking notes, if you have your pens out, on July 26th of this year, just like we do every year, we go down to the beach, we go to Ocean Grove, and we have baptisms. Now, I have to tell you, one of my probably the most favorite thing that I get to do as a pastor is baptize people. When you see the picture, I always have this big Cheshire cat grin on my face. I just love baptizing people. We even had some elderly people who were afraid of the waves, but you know what? You couldn't stop them from going into that water. It was a rough tide last year. But don't worry, we have enough people around you that we're, we're not going to float out to sea. But if you can remember, uh, July 26th at the uh, Bridge Fest with the concert and all, we have the uh, baptism. So people, you know, they, they practice what they preach. They're showing the world, I want to be baptized, I want to identify with Christ, and I want to live that new life in Christ. To the new believer, if you're a new believer or you're not a believer yet, does that sound confusing? Let me make sense of this. I teach theology here. I teach the Bible. I teach the weightier things of the Bible. But I also teach simple things. If you're not ready for that, understand this. All you have to do is repent and believe and let the Lord do the rest. Don't worry about the Holy Spirit. Well, is there enough room in me for the Holy Spirit? Is he going to make me feel funny when he's in there? Where does he actually sit? Don't worry about that stuff. You do your part and let Christ do his. What are my gifts? In time, you'll realize your spiritual gifts. Okay. Now, the order in this message is this. These gentlemen hear the gospel. They repent. They believe. They're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak with tongues. And you can see that in the order here. But understand, the book, the book of Acts is not necessarily a doctrinal work. Okay, when, you go, when we go through the book of Romans, you better have your coffee because there's some doctrinal stuff in there. It's very weighty. The book of Acts is more of a historical work. Why do I say this? Because the confusion lies when people look through Acts and they try to find formulas. Well, what's the formula for this? What's the formula for that? If you look in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, and you look at Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius and the Gentiles uh, were converted and received the Holy Spirit, and you look in this passage, you're going to see some things that you might say, well, gee, the, the order's not there. Okay, they, they spoke with tongues, but in here they prophesied. Over there they didn't. Here they were baptized first. There they weren't. What gives? Don't look at it as a doctrinal work. It's more of a historical work. Remember also that Paul and Peter had special gifts and administrations, and God used them to tie in all these churches. And we, when we showed you a, a map of the Mediterranean, you see there was churches spotted all over the Mediterranean. He used these two men in their office of apostleship to tie all those churches in together into one body of Christ. Likewise, there's no formulas in worship. If there's anyone who railed the most against formulas, it was Jesus Christ himself. Let me give you an example. When we talk about prayer... Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 7, he said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, or the pagans, or the non-believers, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Jesus was not into mantras. He wasn't into incantation. 
He wasn't into continually repeating, repeating, repeating. Jesus was into relationships. Let me give you another, another example about formulas. Healings. Some people, will they want the gift of healing. They want to be able to lay their hands on people and have them be healed. Okay? And what they do is they look in the scripture and they look at the formula for healings. But you're not going to find them. Because in one instance, Jesus was, was greeted by a bunch of men who brought in their quadriplegic friend and he healed them. But mostly it was the faith of the friends that caused this man to be healed. In other instances, it was the faith of the person that said, I, I believe you have the power. In some instances, a man said to Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. He wavered. And in another instance, a woman said, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. So if you look at even the healings, right, you see that they weren't all the same. And you'll get, if you're into routines and, and you have obsessive compulsive disorder, it's going to bother you. You see what I'm saying? Because, and I have a little bit about that, but... <laughs> because the, the gifts are imparted. They're not learned. I get that. The gifts are the whole... That's why they call them gifts. A gift is something that you get for free. When God gives you a gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, it's imparted. It's not learned. We can't learn them. Because that, that really supersedes God. But the point I'm trying to make is that everything in the Bible is about relationship. And if there's anything that you could take a year of the sermons that I preach here, and I believe... Well, I know that it's in the Bible. That's why I preach it. Uh, the theme is it's a relationship. It's not about us doing a formula, trying to get a formula right to get God off our back for the rest of the week. It's about a relationship. I can tell you every day, I'm not saying, saying I, I pray for an hour straight and I have weighty prayers, but I talk to the Lord. He's my father. He's always there with me. Psalm 139, where can you go to flee from his presence? You can't. Wherever you go, God is with you. So I talk to him daily, especially when I go on a call and it's a tough call. I hear it over the radio. I'm like, oh, Lord, this one sounds like a good one. Help me out here. So God is always with me. It's I have a relationship with him. And that's what I'm trying to explain to you. It's not about formulas. It's about relationships. Verse 6, it says that these men spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Now, incidentally, in the book of Acts, this is the last time that the gift of tongues is used in the book of Acts. Similar to Pentecost, similar to Peter's ministry, Paul was tying in these ubiquitous churches, okay? They were ubiquitous. They were here, they were there, they were happening at the same time. He was tying them all in. Get that. There's an overfocus today, and some will even say that if you don't speak in tongues, you can't be saved. Now, that's an extreme, and it's not true. Because in 1 Corinthians 12.30, just want to cover this, 1 Corinthians 12, actually, 29, Paul asks some questions. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? And he says in the Greek, me pantes glosais la lucy. Now, understand that that Greek phrase, okay, is in the Greek subjunctive mood. Whenever I talk about something controversial, I always back it up. I try to back everything up. But the Greek subjunctive mood said is if you use the word may before the phrase, okay, that indicates or demands a no for an answer. So Paul is asking a question, do all speak in tongues? The answer is no. What Paul is saying here is that not all Christians will speak in tongues. It's a gift of God, and the Spirit distributes them severally as he wills, not as we will. The only thing the Bible commands a believer to do regarding the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not to quench the Holy Spirit. The other thing we see here is apostolic authority pretty much died with these men. This was an office for a specific time period and for a specific function. 
Now, there are a lot of denominations. You may think of one, but there are several denominations that claim apostolic authority. Now, that's a problem because they all believe something way different. So somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. But the bottom line is that somebody who tries to claim apostolic authority or succession needs to prove it. Can you, I would ask them, can you impart the spirit of God at will? When was the last time you did that? And I'm not talking about a manufacturing. I'm talking about a real move of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see the Bible tells us that as time goes on and we get into this, this dangerous age that we live in, there's going to be a lot of lying wonders and false miracles. So don't just look at miracles and lying wonders and assume that it's a work of God. Two final points, points here. Number one, these 12, okay, these Ephesian disciples are like the last remnant of the Old Testament. The Old Testament believers bridging in the New Testament work of Christ. Paul kind of brings this last nexus together. This is a fulfillment here. And two, I know we have some realtors in the audience, and uh, if you ask a realtor, what are the three most important things or the easiest way to sell a home? And their answer would be location, location, and location. Now, when we're dealing with the Bible, the three most important things, one, one through three for effective Bible understanding is Whole message, the whole message, and the whole message. You see what I'm saying? This is how it works. As we saw with Apollos last Sunday, these guys lacked the whole story, and um, these disciples had this problem with lacking the whole story initially, and many do today. There are many out there that are repentant. There's many out there that are religious, but they still lack. They still lack the power of God. The power of God doesn't come, actually power doesn't come except from God. And God doesn't give his power except by the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't give his Holy Spirit unless you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In addition, apart from Jesus, apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. I don't care how religious someone is. Today, many are religious and they're going through the motions. I have a friend who was trying to convince me that what he was following was a good thing. And he basically said that, you know, it's, it's very routine, it's very structured, but he lives the way he wants the rest of the six days of the week. And I said, bro, you have what I call the God Happy Meal religion. It's true. That's what we do. Today in our society, what people want is they want to drive through, they want to open the window and say, all right, God, what do you want? Here's some money. Okay, give me my, my, my task for the week and I'm out of here. It's the Happy Meal religion. It's our society. So I can live however I want the rest of the six days. But I can go to church and open up my wallet and feel good about myself. I'm giving the church money or say some prayers or have the leader tell me something or something I should do for the day. So I feel a catharsis, a release of emotion. It feels good to me. And then go back to being a jerk Monday through Saturday. That's not what God's looking for. Okay. The last thing we see here is that these Ephesian disciples go from the natural. They become they're from natural men to supernatural men. And I want to read one last point before we close this up and tie it up. John chapter 3. Some who even have the uh, title of being Christian ask, well, you born again. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, if you read Jesus' words, you'll understand what it means to be born again. Jesus says this in John chapter 3. When he's speaking about the Holy Spirit, too. He says, verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. He's likening the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was, of course, he was God, so he was a master with helping people understand illustrations. 
when he talked to people, they weren't highly educated MIT people. They were your average agrarian people. They were farmers. Maybe they didn't have a great education. So he had to reach the, the very high-minded, and he had to reach the very simple. So he used very simple illustrations. And here he uses the wind. What a better idea. Who would have thought of that except for God himself? And what he says is, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you become a believer, when you become saved, when you become born again, there's a process that happens. and You become filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, like the wind, if you look at the wind, can you see the wind? Are there traces in the, tracers in the wind? No. You, you hear it. You see the trees swaying and the leaves coming down and your hair blowing all over the place. But you can't chase the wind, right? You can't grab it. You can't figure it out. And even the weathermen, they say, it's windy. That's about it. They don't say which way it's going and all. They just say it's windy. But it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. They're, they're changed. They're saved. They're growing. They, they try to put away some of the, the, the awful things they used to do before they were a Christian. You can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. But when a Holy, the Holy Spirit actually imparts itself into somebody's life, who can tell? I mean, I remember... 13, 14 years ago when I got saved, um, I don't remember exactly when it was. And even when it happened, I didn't know that it was happening. It was a process, you see. There was the effect, but I didn't actually see it happening. Verse 8. And he went to the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. A few things in here, verse 9. It says, but when they were hardened. And some people will respond to the message of the gospel. They'll hear the words of God. They'll say, tell me more. Wow, I've never heard something like this. It's what my soul has been always craving. And some people will take their heel and dig it in and say, I'm not moved, and I refuse to be moved. You have two responses when people hear the word of God. But this is also a great example of pearls before swine. Matthew 7, 6, Jesus speaks about that. He says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. This is another great example. I love his examples. Very simple. If you know any pigs, swine, they like mud and they like corn. There's maybe some water, right? Not a whole thing that they like. But if you take a bunch of pearls and you cast them before a, bu- a pig, a swine, he'll nibble at them and he'll either he'll realize that they're no good for him or he can't get any sweetness or taste out of them, or he's breaking his teeth, and he may turn and trample on you because he's pretty upset. But that pig doesn't realize that each one of those pearls can probably feed him with it more mud, more water, and more corn for his whole life, and he could live a happy pig for the rest of his days. But he doesn't realize the value of those pearls. It's the same thing with people. You try to give somebody what's holy. You try to give somebody the message of, of the gospel, everlasting life. And some people are like those pigs. They'll be like, what can I get out of this now? Eh, it's useless to me. And they may turn on you. So it, it's, pretty, it's a pretty cool example there. So these people were hardens. The message of salvation is not a circus. It's not a freak show. And we should not allow it to be treated as such. If somebody's trying to goad you into a situation where they're just antagonistic or they're making a circus out of it, it's pearls before swine. It's time to move on at this point. 
The second thing he says is uh, that Paul separated the disciples from these hardened people. He loved them enough to shelter them from the scoffers. And there'll be times in your life when a mentor or a pastor or somebody who's gone before you in the road of, of, of discipling you may say to you, you know what, maybe it's not a good idea to hang out with these people. They're either scoffers or it's a bad relationship or it's something that's really going to hurt your relationship and your growth with God. And you have to be open to receiving that. The third thing here is that it says that he reasoned daily in Tyrannus' school. How could that be if Tyrannus had an active school? Well, culturally, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in that area, remember this is on the western coast of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, it's hot. The hottest part of the day is between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. So what would happen was, even back then, and they didn't have air conditioning, they would empty the schools and take a little break and then come back later when it cooled off a little bit. And you see a lot of countries outside of the USA do that. As a matter of fact, in Italy they do that. Uh, and they call it like a siesta, right? They, they stop working in the afternoon, they go home, they drink a little wine, eat some food, take a nap, whatever it is they do, they socialize, and they come back later when the day is cooler and they finish out work, the working day. So not, not too far-fetched here as far as um, trying to figure it out. But what's interesting is the Christians didn't care how hot it was. They were willing to go right into that school and listen to what Paul had to say. And they would meet anywhere to learn the things of God. And my question is, is that our attitude? Sometimes as new believers, um, some will, and, and I would hope that we're all excited for the things of God. And then maybe time passes a year and it kind of wanes. You know, your interest wanes. And it shouldn't be like that. And what happens is there are some that they get bored with their God. And now they need the fanfare or entertainment. And they, maybe they come to church, maybe not looking to hear the word of God, but they're looking to be entertained. What is it the pastor can say that's funny today? What can he show me? What can, you know, titillize my senses? I'm going to go to another church that has more fanfare and entertainment. The word of God becomes trite. Entertain me. It's an entertain me society. Show time for the sheep. But I believe that that wouldn't happen here. I believe that if I said next week I'm just going to read the Bible and just kind of tell you basically what it says, everybody would be fine with that. And that's got to be our heart, our desire. We shouldn't be drawn to anything but a place that's teaching the word of God. And these people were as such. Verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Unusual miracles. Unusual. And I say this for a reason. Alternate translation extraordinary, not common, exception, not the rule. There are some today who want to make this the rule, not the exception, and that's a problem. Keep in mind what God was trying to do in that time period with those people. When building the foundation of his church, mighty works accompanied them. The truth is, with all the opposition to Christianity at that time, if God wasn't in it, if there was no supernatural, Starting with the resurrection, Christianity would have never survived. If you read secular works, there was the Bar Kokhba rebellion, roughly 132 A.D. There was uh, different rebellions. There were different people who rose up and claimed to be some type of Messiah. Not just what the Book of Acts says, but also secular history. Okay, and these movements came to nothing. They were either persecuted, or the people realized the person was a false leader, and it was the end of it. Christianity. In the face of intense persecution, remember how small it was. It wasn't like today. They flourished. People were getting killed. Their children were dying in the Colosseums. And it kept growing. 
by the world standard, people would say, what's wrong with these people? Why don't they just give it up? Everybody's against them. But because the Lord was in it, okay, that's important. The miracles were also proof of authenticity and apostolic authority and the catalyst to explosive growth in the known world. What kind of bugs me is when, when some take uh, the things of God and try to turn it into cash, make some money about it. You ever see, and I'm trying to, for the life of me, I can't remember who it was, but on the so-called Christian channel, he was selling the miracle hanky. Anybody see that? Some of you have. For 1999, I'll sell you this miracle hanky. I'll send it to your brothers and sisters, and it'll heal all your problems. Heck, for five dollars more, I'll even blow my nose in it for a special blessing. Well, I don't think he said that, but but the bottom line is, Paul didn't charge for his miracle hanky. Okay, didn't happen. These these ridiculous ads out there trying to separate the gullible from their money, and they're making a fortune doing it. Do you know what that's called? That's called the evil of simony. Starting with Simon the Sorcerer when we went in the book of Acts. Actually, if you look in the dictionary, simony is a legitimate word in our English language. It is a process by which somebody uses the gifts of God or the offices of God to get money. That's evil. I'm sorry. That's just evil. There's no other way to talk about that. If you remember anything about this section, remember, I'm going to say it twice. God's miracles are donated. They're not bought. I'll say it again. God's miracles are donated. They're not bought. That's important to remember. At this time, I want to take you, because we're going to cover this last uh, section uh, to verse 20, and then we're going to be finished. But I want to introduce you a little bit to uh, Ephesus to help you understand the next section. Ephesus was a Roman province of Asia, and I showed it when we had the, uh, the map of the Mediterranean up. It was a city given heavily, Ephesus, to occult practices. It was the home of the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, which is its Roman counterpart, Diana. And we're going to see that next week, how that comes into play. Verse 13. This is actually a funny story. I I find this very humorous every time I read it. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) Then the man gets better, if you haven't heard this before. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Tough break. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed uh, came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, it's a funny story, I guess if you picture it. And I don't think the moral of the story is if you're not sure if the exorcism will work, wear extra underwear. I don't don't think that's the moral. But leaving that aside, verse 13 uh, The exorcists say, we adjure you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. That's interesting. Now, I'm glad it didn't work because what they were trying to do is they were trying to reduce the name of Jesus to an amulet. You ever see people who wear it? They'll wear the crescent moon, the star David, the cross, the sign of Buddha. They'll they'll wear them all to hedge their bets. So when they die, they're hoping that, you know, one of those things will work for them. It's like a charm or an amulet. There was a, when I was young, when I was young, okay, I used to, 
I don't know why, but I like vampire movies, okay? And I wasn't saved, so I would watch them, and then I'd be afraid to go to bed at night, right? But there was this one movie where Roddy McDowell was the vampire slayer. And, <laughs> Fright Night? <laughs> and he was very cowardly. And he comes in contact with the vampire. This is such a cool scene because the, the director didn't know what he was doing, but you've got to see the, the point that, that I'm going to make here. So the vampire opposes Roddy McDowell, and he takes out this big crucifix, and he goes, get back. And the vampire laughs, ha, 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 you have to believe, he says to him. And Roddy McDowell, you know, he's terrified now, what do I do? The, the crucifix didn't work. And then you see another hand come out with a crucifix, and the vampire shrieks back. And what it is was his young protege did believe. He did believe in Jesus. Now, let's not make a theology out of a stupid movie, okay? But you see the point here. It's about what do you believe? Charms and amulets and statues and pictures and all that stuff is not going to save you from the bad guys. Okay? You have to have a relationship with Jesus. And when you do, the demons really, they're going to tread lightly around you. They really are. They're going to try to give you a hard time. But as far as possession and any of that stuff, it just doesn't happen. Now, verse 15. So the itinerant preachers say this to the demons. And here's the demons' response. Jesus I know. Paul, I know. Going into the Greek, it gets a little, you can pull a little, little bit more out of it. They're saying, Jesus, I know. <laughs> Jesus, I know. And keep him away from me because he can throw me into the abyss. And Paul, different Greek word, I have familiarity with. I tread lightly around Paul because if, I, if I'm not careful, Paul will, con- will call up Jesus and I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. But you? Pfft, who are you? Get lost. It's beating time. Dog pile on the rabbit, right? And that's pretty much what happened. One guy jumped on seven or more of them, and he just he busted them up pretty good. But so many use the name of Jesus in our country, and so many don't know the Jesus of the Bible. The Bible tells us that there'll be a, come a time where there'll be a form of godliness in people, but they'll deny its power. Think about that. A form of godliness. The appearance it seems okay, but denying its power. Religion for the sake of religiosity. And religion, let's face it, is big business today. People are making millions, probably billions off of religion. It's big business. Do you know Jesus? Do all of you know Jesus? And the question is, it's not just do you know him. How well do you know him? Because the demons knew him. Is it going to do any good for the demons? They're going to burn for eternity. The sons of Siva knew of him. They didn't know him. And it didn't do them any good. Do you have that personal familiarity with Jesus, that closeness? And what it all comes back to, folks, is relationship. Relationship, relationship, relationship. Just a relationship with God. Verse 17. So this event becomes known, uh, and great fear falls upon the people. It says great fear fell on them, and and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. But you know what's sad? That it takes something so frightening to happen before people wake up and turn to God. And verse 19, as a result, these people who the fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified, what did they do? As a result, they burned their demonic wares, all their incantations, magic books, charms, amulets, gargoyles, statues, whatever they had. They made a big bonfire and they burned all that stuff and said, we're done. What's it going to take for our country? I remember when September 11th happened. You couldn't, it was standing room only when you went to church. They had seats out in the lobbies. People were, you know, around the block, you know, not that much, but 
people were crowding into churches looking for answers. They had preachers on television, on regular news, secular news. They had, the Bible was being quoted. Unbelievable stuff. And what happened a year later? Business as usual. I think about the prophet Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. This guy was great, but he didn't realize what he was asking for. He said to the Lord, my people are so wicked. Lord, when are you going to judge them? You know, I love my country. I love my people, but they're so wicked. And the Lord said, don't worry about it. I'm sending the Babylonians coming over. They're real swift. They're going to just make a mess of this place. And Habakkuk was, whoa, the Babylonians. Couldn't you have done it in a nicer way? See, we don't get to choose how God cleans things up. We don't get to choose it. That's why we need to be praying for revival. We need to be praying for our own personal lives. We need to be praying for our loved ones. We need to be praying for people that we have uh, an influence on. Because when judgment finally comes, it's not pretty. It wasn't pretty for the children of Israel, and it's not going to be pretty for us. And verse 20. Something here grew mightily and prevailed. Was it church programs? Was it Paul's ministry? Uh, Was it Paul's picture on the Internet saying, hey, you know, look at my ministry? No, it was the word of God. The word of God grew and prevailed. And we've seen this before, the Bible tells us. You've got to hand it to Paul because in the center of occultism, of Ephesus, Paul took it right into Satan's backyard. And he wanted to make a difference with those people. And how appropriate what I said in the beginning of our message. Um, our missionaries, I'm very proud of them. I pray for them. I hope you're praying for them every day. Because in some of these places, they're right in Satan's backyard. They're into heavy, uh, Stephen was telling me, a lot of the occult practices, a lot of the demonic things that people practiced in these villages. And, you know, he went out and to give them the gospel and share the truth with them because they were in darkness, spiritual darkness. So if you look at everyone we dealt with in this chapter, you see a common theme. There's a difference between, between those who had the truth of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and those without whether it was, we talked about Apollos, whether it was these Ephesian disciples, whether it was the sons of Siva, or the Ephesian population in general. But the truth is, the Bible says, we're dead in our sins and heading straight to hell with the rest of the world, unless we're regenerated, we repent of our sins, we believe in Jesus, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the sanctification process starts and we bear fruit. Because the only way we can bear true fruit is, is if we're in Christ. There's a lot of charities out there. You say, well, what about the world? A lot of charities, you know, big-name charities, they bear fruit. Well, if you look at it deep enough and you go into this, actually a website that, that looks into these charities, a lot of the big-name ones, there's a lot of waste. They waste a lot of money. There's corruption. So can you really make a difference without Christ? Maybe, but it's not going to make any spiritual difference. It's going to have no eternal uh, lasting goals. You're just going to send people to hell a little well off. That's what you're doing. Spurgeon was asked the question, How do you do the work of two men? His answer was, you forget there are two of us. He meant him and the Holy Spirit. So I pray that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would take that opportunity today. And I pray that if you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would ask him for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.